Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am. I am joined this week, not by the magnificent, marvelous Mad Wizard Merwin, because he is in England exploring castles and whatnot. Uh, but this week, I have with me Douglas Cole, who is bringing some heresy to us, some dragon heresy. Doug, welcome to Down with D&D. How's it going? It is going quite well. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so today we're going to talk um, a bit about 5th uh, edition rules drifts, which we like to talk about now and again, because uh, Dragon Heresy is, uh, from from my scan of the rules, a a more crunchier version of the 5th edition rule set. Would that be uh, would that be accurate? I think that's fair. There were uh, it, It's a combination of a little bit more crunch, but also uh, a bit of opportunity to uh, adjust the narrative mechanical um <clears throat> equivalency level kind of like if you're working a graphic equalizer there are some things that you really have to put your the right hat on in order to to buy into and i've had some i've seen some complaints about that right you get into a big fight you're down to three hit points from 200 you take a long rest and you're good to go now some of that is just the nature of what hit points are and aren't and it's a big fuzzy blob of fighting oh. efficiency we will talk about um, vigor loss and wounds at, in, in the not too distant future um, i'm curious about this also the hit dc and, and threat dc and how they function in the game also this idea of frantic defense that is a preview for yes, all you absolutely. folks out there listening these are these are fascinating things that i that i picked up in this rule in this rule set i'm very curious as to uh to get Doug's uh, take on what these things do to change the nature of the game. Uh, but before we get to all that, I was just wondering, um, like who, for the folks at home, who are you, Doug? What do you do? Uh, where are you in the RPG design space? Um, let the people know about you. Absolutely. So uh, obviously my name is Douglas Cole. I, I run a company uh, that started as a blog called Gaming Ballistic. Uh, blog's name came because I was really into Firearms, modeling firearms appropriately, and did a lot of work in GURPS. Uh, actually, an article that I wrote in 2002 or 2004 landed me in TV tropes. Um, if you uh, if you look up GURPS and guns, you'll see my name there. But I started for about 10 years or more, actually 15, I guess, uh, writing for Steve Jackson Games as a freelancer. Um, and I extend, expanded my horizons to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, because, yeah, I know, when 5th edition came out, uh, I explored it more. I played some Pathfinder, got back a little bit to the roots. D&D, advanced D&D and basic D&D are how I got into the hobby back in 1980 or so. Um, but, yeah, so I, I've been known for some really crunchy stuff in the GURP space. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've appreciated the more streamlined rule sets. Um, and so I started to write uh, the Dragon Heresy book. Um, and then Wizards came out with the OGL and the SRD and the GM's Guild, DM's Guild, back to back to back. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I realized I could take what I thought was just going to be a few pages of house rules and really build a game around it. Um, but then I realized that in order to do it the way I wanted to, I would require an enormous amount of money. Um, and so it kind of went a lot more slowly. But I was able to extract a couple things from the manuscript, the grappling rules became dungeon grappling. I launched that in Kickstarter last year. Um, I did a demo at Gen Con of the dungeon grappling uh, rule set 
two two-hour sessions that that went quite well and showed the the new grappling rules. Um, and that led to saying, hey, I could turn that into an adventure, and that became Lost Hall of Tear. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, I was like, you know, it's time to really get Dragon Heresy out there. I've been talking about it for years. People are going to get tired of me talking about it. I'm getting tired of me talking about it. Um, so let's get it out there so that people can love it or hate it um, and uh, uh, get this done for real. And so I decided to release an introductory set that would cover the basics, introduce people to Threat DC, Hit DC, new shield rules, frantic defense, whatever, um, and uh, see what we could do about uh, uh, playing the game the way that uh, the play tests that I had run showed that it could be played and let people have fun with it. So I got a question for you. Where did the... Um... Where did the name gaming ballistic come from? You said it's from your love of your love of uh, of firearms. Like, are, are you a firearm aficionado? Like, where did you get your start with firearms? Why do you love them so much? Yeah, you know, it, I've always been, maybe it's because I was told I could never use them when I was a kid. But uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it, honestly, it was one of those things where I got introduced to shooting, target shooting. Uh, I've never really hunted. I maybe hunted once, but you know, my my idea of going out for for meat is is stock buyerlies or, or Lunds or grocery store. Right? I don't need to do that. But I, I find a lot of uh, pleasure in, in the precision and the discipline of, of shooting. Um, gaming Ballistic really came out because I got tapped with the, uh, the phrase, the uh, Dr. Gerb's Ballistics, after I had written an article uh, in 2002 about converting real-world statistics uh, to Gerb's numbers. And whenever there was a question about that sort of thing, it came to me. And so people said, oh, this is a doctor of Gerb's ballistics. So great. <laughs> ha ha. Fun. So when I started a blog um, in in 20, late 2012, uh, you know, got to have a blog title. I wanted it to be catchy. So I riffed off that and said, hey, I'm, I'm it's gaming ballistic. And did a lot of early stuff on various topics, not all of them gun-related. Um, when I have uh, the discipline to do it, I will do uh, what I call Monday is Gun Day, and I'll convert a cartridge or, or, or a, uh, uh, a weapon into GURPS or, or other stats. I came up with a way of doing that for D&D as well. Um, and uh, these days, I've been kind of head down in game development land, and there's only so much creative energy and time to go around, so that's mm-hmm. fallen off a little bit. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And you were a, a fellow member of the Indie Game Developer Network, uh, as am I. So, I mean, that that's a nice resource to to get a lot of information for publishing and making games and whatnot. Um, and you've been very active there. We, we have uh, showing off a lot of your layouts, sharing a lot of your knowledge. Um, it's been it's been pretty cool to watch you you build these these products over the course of time. I appreciate it. It's it's been fun to learn, and you know, people have been very patient and kind with me of their time. And so I feel like giving back. It's the same reason why each year I publish not only what happened with Gaming Ballistic, the company in the prior year, but also a financial statement so people can get an appreciation for what it's like to run a gaming company and spend $20,000 more than you take in (laughs) in the early stages of it. And to just sort of show that it's, you know, it's real people spending real money doing real uh, fun things, but um, at least the way I'm carrying it out right now, I'm going to maybe adjust that going forward. Um, but uh, it can it requires a lot of uh, either personal or external fund uh, investment in order to develop high production value stuff. And so that's been an eye opener. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kickstarter, right? Like most of Quite. the, most, I mean, Piazzo makes beautiful books, the Pathfinder, and all that good stuff. And so does so does Watsi. But I mean, most of that budget is art budget. So I mean, that's usually where where a lot of the money tends to go. Um, and that and printing and shipping and all that good stuff, right? 
Yes, that's correct. Uh, at the level that I'm doing, which is maybe $400 per full page of full color art, um, about 60% of a game's development budget is uh, uh, art, uh-huh. art direction. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's all that fun back background yeah. stuff, everybody out there. Uh, let's talk about this game. So this is this is down with D&D. We love talking about the the brand and the game of Dungeons and & Dragons, and we like talking about Drifts. At one point in the past, we talked about Adventures in Middle-Earth and how that does things a little bit differently. Let's talk about Dragon Heresy and how that does things a little differently. And I think the first place I want to go is um, this idea of vigor and wounds. These are two different kinds of um, health resources that you have in the game. Uh, what are they? How do they function? And how do they change play at the table? Very good. Um, Vigor and Wounds, um, I came up with independently, but it's nicely tucked into some of the optional rules as I think Wounds and Vitality, and I think both Pathfinder and 3.5. Someone pointed that to me afterwards. I'm like, oh, yeah, good. Parallel Evolution. Point is, is that even though the Dungeon Master's Guide, AD&D, page 82, says hit points are not necessarily blood, uh, and the analogy is uh, Robin Hood... uh, Robin versus Sir Guy of Gisborne, Errol Flynn, Basil Rathbone. They fight, they fight, they fight, they fight. Uh, a single wound is delivered at the end of that fight, and Guy of Gisborne falls off the off a parapet and dies. Um, all of that is hit point loss, but you're at positive hit point, so you're still good to go, and then you fall off. I wanted to differentiate um, for a couple of reasons. Part of it firearm related, but I'll get to that. I wanted to differentiate between grit and luck and skill and active defense and all the things that make recovering hit points with short and long rest sensible mm-hmm. from, oh my God, I have a spear through my liver and no amount of night sleep is going to fix that. Um, I had a, a friend of mine who went on a fairly epic rant um, the way that you can when you're playing a game and you say, oh, we're playing this and, and we take a long rest and now we're good. And he went on for a good five or 10 minutes about how it made no narrative mechanical unification sense. Um, and I, I was hearing that and I'm like, you know, and then the other part of that was a realization that, you know, like the sniper shot or the assassins thing requires a lot of hand waving. And I mean that in a nice way. It requires a lot of GM adjudication to say, yeah, you sneak up on the monster. It's asleep. You run your sword across its throat and it's dead. Well, if you've ever heard or, God forbid, seen videos of executions, um, which I will say I have not, but I've read stories of like how many axe swings it takes to decapitate somebody back in medieval England, mm-hmm. it's not always perfect. Mm-mm. And so you really can get that first shot in and have it not be a, a, a full coup de grace. Um, and so how do you do that? Well, I wanted to come up with a concept of wounds are what make you bleed and vigor is represents all of the things that kind of get lumped into hit points right now and well and truly as long as you have one left you're good to go um and and so that was kind of the 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 start of what wounds and vigor were um and then the question is well if you have those two things and you're just working down vigor and when vigor is gone you get into wounds well that's not much different than saying you die at negative 10 or negative constitution or or whatever hit points you're still playing a game of hit point ablation Mm -hmm. and so i needed a way to say oh this was a skillful enough or lucky enough or whatever shot that nope I don't care how much vigor in the world you have, that weapon is going to impact your body. So that's, and that's where, where the hit DC threat and threat DC, DC, DC come. Yeah. Came out. Yep. That's clever. I like that. Maybe that's the, you had this hit point, um, 
issue that you were trying to solve. I, I love, I love game design. Like I like talking about game design. So there was a problem. Like the problem was, is like, this doesn't feel realistic enough because we want something that is less abstract than just the idea of hit points. Cause it didn't make narrative sense in the people that were playing head. So you want something that worked a little bit better. So vigor is all that abstraction. Well, wounds are the actual wounds that you will take, but you need, you know, like you said, you already described it. You need something to, to make that actually function a little bit better to have a little bit more variance there where you could actually take a wound in the middle of a fight instead of just like losing vigor. So, then explain now how hit dc and threat dc make that happen absolutely so basically the threat dc is what it takes in order to uh not have just whiffed right uh, i've done martial arts for 10 or 15 years now um when i started and when everyone when you spar with white belts or beginners Sometimes you just misjudge the distance or your opponent moves in in a, a unpredictable way. You swing and you miss, right? You can you can hear the baseball announcer in the background. Uh, and it's a strike. And, and that happens sometimes. And you need to differentiate between an attack that requires unusual effort to, to avoid uh, versus one that doesn't, the natural dexterity or whatever. So I basically said 10 plus your dex mod is your threat DC. Um, so it's kind of like a touch attack in Pathfinder, um, and uh, it uh, it served the purpose for a basic level of attack prowess that would be required to hit. And and it's not a high bar, right? Your typical adventure is going to be in a ten to thirteen threat DC unless they pick up a shield, and we can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. um, but you know they're going to be in the ten to thirteen range. But you're rolling one d twenty plus five as a rookie, typically. Yeah. So you're, you're more than 50% likely to exceed threat DC. Then hit DC, it starts off basically, I, I did a bunch of simulation because I'm a simulation dork, and it came up with sort of eight plus your proficiency bonus was a good place to be that would make it the, the spread between threat DC and hit DC. Because hit DC, if you meet or exceed hit DC, you've actually bypassed defenses and you've struck the target. Yeah. After which, armor subtracts from damage. So all armor is damage reduction mm -hmm. uh, in the D&D &D parlance. Um, but armor subtracts from damage after that. And if you get through armor, you take wounds. And so did a bunch of math, and that 8 plus your proficiency felt right for separation of hit DC. But really what that means is that if your threat DC is 12, your hit DC is 22. Mm -hmm. So it's not quite the same as a critical hit, but it's close. Um, and yeah. a very skilled person, uh, if you've got a plus six proficiency guy um, going after with a high skill, you're going to be rolling you know, 1D to 20 plus 11 or 12. You're going to be rolling a hit against a rookie like 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. right? So you're just that fast. Uh, and you're going to get right into the wounds, and you'll be able to mow through mooks like you should because you're an epic almost superhero um, but at lower levels it balances out and there's always that risk of having the blow slip through your defenses and and hit your armor uh and if the armor isn't strong enough to to wound you uh, and wounds very quickly become debilitating there's a bit of a death spiral involved as well so let's uh let's let's walk through this for a second um yeah. i get some i roll over the 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 threat dc yes. but i don't hit the hit dc Yes, you lose vigor. Okay, that's that's where vigor is lost, and that, that's where vigor is lost. And so that represents a parry, a block, an extra dodge. But you take you are not bleeding, mm -hmm. you're not hit, 
uh, if there is a poison on the blade, you don't suffer the effects of poison. Because while you had to make some effort to ward off or avoid that blow, represented by a vigor loss, um, you have not actually been struck. So where does my armor come into play again? Like I, I st- After you get hit. So, that's, so if you, if you uh, run out of vigor, if you no longer have any vigor, any threat is also a hit. Okay. That makes sense. So if, yeah, so if you, your, your defenses are down, you're just that tired, your luck has run out, pick your euphemism. It doesn't matter which one, mm-hmm. but your, your reserve of, of activity, defenses, luck, godly inspiration, whatever it is, have run out. And now every attack that is a threat is a hit. Um, and you, the weapon impacts the armor, or if you're not wearing armor, it impacts the body. Um, DR is subtracted from any damage, mm-hmm. and the rest is taken as wounds. Um, and you don't have very many wounds. Uh, what? What? How many wounds do you have? Like, is it like uh, your to your... constitution plus your strength bonus? Oh. So for <laughs> so for Joe, average you have ten, and then if you get to eleven, you're dead. Uh, if you're above half your wound maximum, you're unconscious. Interesting. Um, and there's you get a you get an injured condition if you're above a quarter of your so there's thresholds. Nice. Um, I really like the condition mechanic in in D and D. I I think uh, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that simplifies mechanics while still providing a lot of depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, if you uh, and so like a twentieth level barbarian with con twenty four strength twenty four will have a maximum of thirty one wounds, which means that if if you can get an axe on him. He's one or two blows from being dead, just like any normal human mm-hmm. uh, would be. Uh, and that, I think, is in tune with Gygax's statement in the same paragraph on the old AD&D, <laughs> that of course a human can't actually suffer 20 or 40 sword blows. It represents a lot more. This just makes it a little ex- more explicit. Yeah, it, it, it divvies it up so that we have a, a delineation between what is, like you right. said, the luck, the the fortitude, the the the, the ability to, to move on and then we start actually getting wounded for real that's right and yeah. that's and that's a much more severe uh, uh, in, uh, uh, occurrence it, it carries more intimate con- uh, uh, immediate consequences uh, and more severe consequences and at least in the play test that we run um, it was a lot of fun right you, you cheered when you scored a wound uh, you had to reevaluate your your life choices when you took one mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, and by and large it was it was pretty good however, and this you, you you mentioned it earlier, so I'm going to go there. Yeah. Um, as long as you have vigor remaining, you can employ as a reaction something called frantic defense. Yeah, that's which is fascinating. Right. So yeah, is- dear God in heaven, let me get away from this. And you throw yourself out of the way. And if you can absorb the damage, twice the damage rolled as vigor, you can soak it. Okay. So it's a desperate parry. It's throwing yourself out of the way. Uh, I, I deliberated in requiring a step back. And then said, oh, the God, that's just don't go there. Um, but it would be a way to go, right? The only way that you could employ a frantic defense is if you had enough movement left to step back. Um, but, you know, that was, that was more fiddle than we needed. And mm-hmm. I'd already, I felt like I was still rolling 1d20 against a target number, although it's two target numbers in one margin of success kind of matters. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to get into, if you're into attack and defense and if and then and whatever, uh, you might as well go play GURPS Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game, mm-hmm. a game that I love, but it's not the same feel and, and, and play style that 5th edition and Dungeons & Dragons in general is. And I didn't want to turn D&D into GURPS. 
I wanted to use the core concepts of the fifth edition rule set, which are wonderful building blocks. I wanted to use those core concepts with a little tweak to have a game that was recogni- instantly recognizable to the 80 or 90% of the population that plays D&D, um, but added some things to the gameplay that I thought were a lot of fun. Well, you've, like you, you just mentioned, you've added um, uh, uh, the, the, the gradation of success. Like there is a, there's margin of success matters in this game. And then, yes. of course, even after success is ha- had, especially even like the uh, the 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 best success possible, which well, we should talk about crits in a second because I saw there's a crit threshold mechanic. But um, when you've when you've succeeded at hitting somebody, that means if you have a ton of uh, of vigor left, you can employ that as long as you have your reaction to get to uh, to to basically soak that hit. So that's that is correct. That's cool. Like, I mean, it's it's it then functions sort of like a critical hit in some ways, as long as the person has the reaction. But like, they're like, well, I could get wounded, or I could just, you know, get out of the way, you know. And- right. Exactly. And and the way that that your armor now acts as dr. If you throw on a suit of plate armor, and you're going against a cobalt or something, who's rolling one d plus two or one d plus one for damage, don't bother. It's gonna unless he rolls a critical, it's gonna ping. Mm-hmm. And that is basically, if you go onto any of these YouTube videos, you see people swinging swords and, and stuff against gothic recreation uh, plate armor. You're not getting through it. So there's there's a bit of, you know, how uh, do I feel lucky, right? You know, am I going to hope that hey, I've got a 75% chance of, of soaking this blow by not reacting? Uh, that actually happened in one of our play tests. We had a guy with a low strength, uh, low strength guy with a rapier who was rolling like 1d mi- 1d8 minus 1 for damage against a guy in a chainmail sh- chainmail shirt dr6 three times in four he could hit but the armor would soak it mm-hmm. and so what he wound up doing is he did a bum rush and grappled the guy which is exactly what you did when you had a guy in plate armor or whatever you can see the the pictures in talhofer and and fiori and and other things if you had somebody who was basically impervious to your hand weapon, you grappled him and then stuck a knife in his visor. And there was a chance that you would have to resort to that. And as it happens, he's like, oh, forget it. I'm going to grapple this guy. So he rushes in, rolls a critical hit on his grappling roll, bypasses all of the threat DC and hit DC, takes the guy down. Um, the guy rolled a, you know, I, I, we did a little bit of improv and said, oh, you know, he drops his weapon. And all of a sudden he's got four swords and the bad guy bandit leader surrenders. And then his minions flee. And I didn't feel like that was going to be something that happened in hit point ablation. No, that, that wouldn't happen. Like that is um, at that point though, it's uh, like, so I have a question now. Say I, say yeah. I take the guy in the plate mail down and he's on his back. Um, yep. but he can still fight. And he's, even though he's down. Like what what is the mechanical advantage now that if I am the guy with the rapier trying to kill the guy who's on his back with, uh, in, in this, in this version of the system. So I, I believe, so if you've just taken him down, I believe that the prone condition you attack, if you're not, that you get attacked with advantage and you attack with disadvantage. Correct. Um, yeah. So, so that's what it is. You take him down. All of a sudden, you're attacking him at effectively plus five, and so he's, still, he's attacking you at minus five. So that's a pretty good advantage. Yeah. So mechanically, um, though, yeah. um, he's still got the. Although, although at that point, then as long as you can roll over the thing, you can bypass. Well, no, because he still gets the armor even if you hit right. Like, so how do you still 
How do you model ah, that? Funny you should mention that. So you can uh, aim and evaluate and aim for chinks in armor. So you can, if you have, especially if you have multiple attacks, but also if you have an opportunity uh, to take a turn, uh, an attack action, I should say, um, you can accept disadvantage or cancel out advantage that you already have. And in this particular case, when he's down, you can do, uh, an, I aim for the chinks in armor, uh, and either you increase your critical threshold, which we'll get to in a minute, or more importantly in this case, the DR of your target is halved. There, there, there it is right there. That's what I was looking right for. There. Now now it actually matters to do that because you're knocking him down, which gives you advantage, which then you can call, make essentially a called shot, right? Chinks and armor. That is exactly, like and that's that. what it's called in the rules. It's a called shot. Absolutely. Yep. And then that, that, that'll... That'll give you the straight roll, which then, I mean, you're already hitting this person all the time anyway, so therefore you can get around that armor and that's, or get, at least get through part of that. So then rape your, rape your wielder, then doesn't have to deal with DR6, you don't have to deal with DR3. Correct. And that's, you know, especially if, yeah. So then, then almost always you're putting wounds in and just a few, uh, if you, the instant you take wounds, uh, you have to make a morale check. Mm. Um. And if you make it, you don't have to do it again. It's not every time you take wounds. Once you get blooded, if you make that morale check, you're in the fight until you choose to leave. Um, and then you have the injured threshold, uh, which gives you disadvantage on on everything, and you're and you're slow. Uh, and then once you get to half your wound maximum, you're unconscious. And that's a it's a it, it it doesn't take much, right? If you impale somebody, it doesn't take much to make them combat ineffective. Mm -hmm. um, and the bigger the monsters are. The higher wounds they have, the the less likely that is for for that to happen. Yeah, I imagine there's a scale, there's a scaling to it. Too. I imagine a Tarask has a number of wounds in in like the the you know the hundred. <laughs> um. Yeah. It may be. It may be closer to. It's hard to say, right? Because a Tarask has like what strength thirty, con thirty kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's, you're going to have forty basic wounds just from, uh, just from the numbers, and then because I think it's a gar it's a super gargantuan whatever creature. Yeah. I think that gets multiplied by two or four. Yeah, so it's like a hundred yeah, to hundred and twenty yeah, so, twenty ish wounds. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna require a lot of chopping logs before you get that to uh and he probably also has like DR twenty five because he's stone. Um so you're gonna have to, <laughs> to do stuff. I don't I don't know. I'm making that up because Tarask is not one of the creatures that got ported into uh the the big foes book. But uh, if you were fighting something that mighty, an ancient dragon or an elder dragon or, or ancient dragon, I guess, um, you're, you're looking at a lot of wounds. Giants have a lot of wounds, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. As they should, right? That's kind of how they As they should. As they should. That's right. Um, you know, as an interesting aside, to get back to your original question uh, about um, guns and, and stuff, one of the things that Threat DC, Hit DC, Wounds and Vigor does is it solves the hit point problem for guns. Because if you're a high-level barbarian, you can basically get an M60 unloaded into you at point-blank range, and you're just hit point, hit point, hit point, hit point, hit point, hit point. And it gets a little bit of straining disbelief when you're running out of a belt of ammo before your barbarian is, is dropping, or your <laughs> barbarian equivalent with 200 hit points is dropping. What this says, though, is if you're hit multiple times uh, you know, with multiple attacks or whatever, as soon as you start taking wounds, you are really not necessarily that much more robust than the next guy. Um, and there are, uh, mechanics in there that make swift attacks as opposed to melee attacks, uh, more difficult to deal with. You can't, for example, use uh, a knife and a sword to defend against a swift attack, an arrow or a bullet in this particular case. Uh, those you can really only take, you can only defend against by losing vigor, uh, if you have a shield to hide behind. 
Yeah, which is now the question that I want to ask is shields are very fascinating in this game because in in D&D shields, all they really do is give you a, a bonus to your armor class. In this game, they provide a couple different functions. So what are those they, functions? Yes, absolutely. First of all, um, you know, the uh, uh, I, I, I'd show it to you because it's behind me, but uh, uh, yeah, for the video guys, right? So this is a small Viking shield that I happen to have. I say small because it's less than half my height. Um, and so if I'm covering half my body um, and I get five or 10% different to hit, that doesn't work for me. I, I started taking, as a part of the research into the game, I started taking Viking historical recreation, not reenactment, but recreation martial arts. We use the historical weights and, and methods of making the equipment and figure out how they would have fought. Um, shields are really awesome. They, they deny angles. They do all kinds of stuff, and we consider the shield the primary weapon. Mm -hmm. You are always using your shield. You are occasionally using your weapon. Um, so I wanted more reflection of that um, than, than what was seen in, in most typical rules. So they're plus four threat DC, which is about the biggest thing that you can add to your threat DC. Fighting styles add one or two because uh, we still play with within the bounded accuracy. But threat DC increases by plus four simply by picking up the shield. Um, you, you can also, instead of using a reaction to lose vigor, you can use your reaction to take a blow on the shield. So if you have a shield and someone exceeds your threat DC but not your hit DC, instead of losing vigor, uh, you can you can throw that up there and 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 block it. Uh, if they ex if they exceed your hit DC, you're the only thing that's available to you is frantic defense, because your hit DC also increases by plus four, right? Because your hit DC is a, a difference from your threat DC. Mm -hmm. So you pick up a shield, your threat DC might go from 12 to 16, mm -hmm. which pushes your hit DC to 26. Yeah. So the odds of bypassing that shield on an equal opponent are pretty low. Now, when I throw my shield up and take that blow on my shield, what happens to my shield? Uh, depending on how much damage comes in, you'll take a hit to the shield. It'll like soak the first few points, and that depends on the construction of the shield. Uh, right now, that number is five, but you can see where you could have a flimsy shield or a stout steel shield that mm -hmm. would be different. Right now, that number is five for easy work. If you do five or fewer points, um, nothing happens to your shield. It's not strong enough. If you take six to ten, you take a hit. If you take three hits and the shield is destroyed. Yeah, so the shield's got a and couple of – it can take some notches before it breaks down. That's that cool. That is correct. I'm, I'm into that. That's that's really – I like that. I like some of the versatility in the in the hand to hand kind of fighting in this game. That gives um some other things to think about and choices to make when when constructing characters. Because now, like being a sword and board fighter was never really always very appealing uh, in in D and D to me. Because I don't know, it just seemed kind of boring. There wasn't a ton of stuff that you could do with it. I'm sure there's going to be somebody out there's like there's a cool build that you can use. I'm like I'm sure there is, but um. That is a that is a neat thing to me where I can actually like use my shield as like this this resource that can then take take hits and will yep. eventually get broken. But uh, until right. it does, and, and, I haven't. And the, the wound economy means that taking you know especially if you get down to low vigor, then that's the thing that that really you have to play it to appreciate. Once you get down to low vigor and you really don't have a lot of wherewithal to avoid taking wounds if you didn't have that shield you've got a couple of turns a couple of reactions that you can throw that shield up there and get to your allies or do a fighting withdrawal or try and change the tactic somehow before you you are out of vigor mm -hmm. um an optional rule that is in the uh 
I think it's in my appendix, but it won't be published in the introductory set because I didn't want to just pile on. But there, there is a provision for getting, uh, accepting a, a rank, uh, uh, sorry, a level of exhaustion and replenishing half your vigor or all your vigor. Huh, that's so you interesting. Can, you can fight yourself to death, so to speak, by just taking more and more. You get more and more because exhaustion lasts a long time, right? It, you know, you lose one level of exhaustion per long rest. So it's the same way that like your barbarian is limited to a certain number of rages before they're so exhausted that they can't continue. You can fight yourself and say, oh, I'm almost out of vigor, so I'm going to accept a level of exhaustion and the penalties that come with that to replenish my vigor and fight on. Uh, that can that's out of the intro set because that can make for long combats mm-hmm. because then you really need to to work the wounds. Um, but it is a level of of well, how can I push myself? How can I keep fighting? Well, what if I'm I have a high willpower and I can just power through that vigor loss? Well, okay, if you want to accept a couple levels of exhaustion, you can keep fighting. But eventually, every blow you throw is going to be at disadvantage and you're going to get attacked with advantage. And uh-huh. so there's that still that death spiral. Yeah, exhaustion um, where you're, you're just out mechanic. of time, out of luck, out of skill, and you're done. Um, if you've ever done sparring in armor or with shields or weapons, uh, you get tired, right? You get tired doing that kind of stuff. And, and it, there's some reality to it that, uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be tired tomorrow, but I'm going to do this. Um, but you know, I don't want to push the reality thing so hard because D and D at its core is is an epic game. Well, let's. I was going to ask and, you about how how yeah. magic interacts with all of this stuff and how uh, high uh, high heroics interacts with all of this stuff because me uh, me thinking about about this rule set now, um, the way that it's constructed, like the shield thing is cool because it gives you a, a narrative beat to go with the mechanic of um, of being a sword and board fighter. Um, if you're going to wield a two-handed weapon and you're going to be kind of a big burly kind of fighter then having that high strength high con matters because you have more wounds you can actually take more hits if you're going to be a quicker fighter then you know you have to actually really think about how you're going to engage because you can't really afford to get hit too many times that is correct and and there are strategies you can use there are fighting styles you can take to increase your threat dc uh your dex bonus goes right to your threat dc that matters Mm mm-hmm um, and, and so that, that all, all of that is true. All of that is true. Uh, what it means, I think, is that in many cases saying, uh, we're just going to charge in and slog it out with the enemy, um, is going to be a little bit of a suboptimal choice. It's you need a terrible to idea. Cannily. <laughs> and that's somewhat true in D and D too, but where it really gets you is the many on one situation where, um, if you're outnumbered, it used to be you can just take it because you've got a certain number of hit points that you can take, and mm-hmm. okay, you're getting attacked by a bunch of people, but you can take it. In this particular case, there's a bit of a random chance to it where uh, more rolls is more potential for them to exceed your hit DC, uh-huh. and unless you've got your good armor, um, then then you're in trouble. Um, but you know, if you think about how historical fighters would do when they would pick up that two-handed sword. Um, frequently they would be encased in full plate. Um, not always, not always, but, but frequently. And, and like, you know, long sword fighters, um, uh, two of my fellow instructors at the, at the Osfolk Viking martial arts are also big HEMA guys and they're long sword fighters. That was not always, uh, full on armor and stuff, but frequently it was. So if you're going into battle, you're going to put on the highest DR you can. Uh, and then at that point, um, you have a, uh, 
I won't call it a saving throw because it's not really a saving throw, but you've got yet another layer of of protection between you and 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 getting wounded. Uh, and plate armor is still the best armor in the game, and now it really earns its its price tag. Mm-hmm. Bec- it's still though that whole many on one thing. Even if you're in plate armor, you don't want to really be in the middle of a many on one because if the people that you're fighting that are many are some sort of coordinated, they will do the thing that you mentioned with the rapier fighter before. They'll work together put you on the ground yes. and stick a dagger in your, in your visor. That's it's- right. And you only get one frantic defense per, per turn. Yep. Uh, I have deliberated uh, proficiency divided by two, but again, not for the basic game. Oh man. Like I think, I think that frantic defense defense thing is great because it works within the bounds of the rules of, of fifth edition D and D like the, that rule set that already exists. Like you get your one reaction every, every go around. Yep. That's right. That's right. I know that Pathfinder has a thing where sometimes you take an action like whatever and you'll get a couple uses of it. Um, actually, one of the optional rules that eventually got dropped because uh, my game is set in a Viking culture. Yeah, it's got the Norse gods to it. Um, Absolutely. Um, and the cosmology is such that, you know, that's who created that world. Um, so it's not like, oh, it's just one whatever. You know, it's like this guy over here is the son of of Thor, who got frisky with somebody, and and so there's no deny there's no atheist in Atera, because you can have a conversation and have a drink with Heimdall, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and so it, it's a delusion to be an atheist when you can shake hands with Odin, uh, mm-hmm. although you'll probably regret it. Um, the uh, the point on that one though is um, uh, I lost my own train of thought. Um, oh yeah, Viking culture. So monks didn't really have a good place. Monk is a very East Asian, you know, Asian kind of flavor. Yes. Um, and so a lot of that capability, I, I just, I took the class out of the game. Oh, yeah, uh, now there is a, 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 an Asian, Japanese, Korean flavor country way off in the, uh, in the West uh, called Inthriki. Um, but again, for the basic introductory set, I didn't want to burden people with all this world building because really what I wanted to be able to do is, you know, grab your character, go into the former dragon empire, because there has to be a former dragon empire, <laughs> uh, and go kill things and take their stuff. Right, Kind of core old school dungeon delving. Um, but there's a lot of, just like the 5th edition game engine, there's a lot of politics and culture and whatever built into it that if mm-hmm. you want to explore, you can. Or you can just go north of the wall, because there has to be a wall, um, and kill things and take their stuff. Uh I am I am interested in, in in the setting, and when the full book comes out, maybe you can come back into the show and we can talk more about the actual setting of Dragon Heresy. I am I am very fascinated by the rule sex. I like talking about rules drifts, with, especially with Fifth Edition. We've we've talked about Esper Genesis. We've talked about, like I said, Adventures in Middle Earth. Um, is there going to be a modern version of this rule set coming out at some point? Funny you mention that. Yes. <clears throat> I mean, yes. you did mention I, guns, I so I assume there was. One. Yeah. Um, I need to get past this one. But yes, I have in my mind a plan for a modern version. Um, monster hunting, like mo- like Buffy the Vampire Slayer type nice. stuff where you have the secret world of monsters. Are you going to uh, go Monster know. Hunter International more on that side of things? Because of, you know, with guns yeah, and Yeah, that like license that? already exists. There, there's yes and no. I, I, I like, there's certain concepts I want to borrow um, the, the, I played in a role-playing game with, who was run by a friend of mine where we piled on each other. He had some ideas, I had some ideas. Um, but I like the concept of a secret struggle between the forces of light and dark. 
Um, and Monster Hunters International has some of that. And I've read, I think, almost all the books. If mm-hmm. I haven't read all the books, I've, I've maybe missed a most recent one. Um, but I, I want it to be well, a couple of things. I, I'm going to try and make it no class, no level. Okay. Uh, I'm going to have where you really embrace the feat system to add uh, capability to your character. But every additional feat is, especially if you're doing like leveled feats, like, oh, I want to get better and better and better at fisticuffs. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's going to follow the geometric progression that's already in the experience point. Your first one is, and I'm going to totally make up numbers because I haven't sat down to do the design yet. Sure. Your first feat of a type might be 100 experience and then 200 and then 400 and then 800. So at some point, it's going to be more cost effective to say, oh, I'm going to broaden myself rather than continue to get deep or I'm going to save up and be the best sword fighter or best martial artist or best machine gunner ever. Um, and to, to build things up a lot like uh, adventurer conqueror king system does mm-hmm. where if you have the the player's companion it's basically the classes that you see in the game are part of a modular system that has the things done for you i really like that approach uh, because it gives you the capability of doing your own thing while at the same time being a ready-made template system for people who don't want to bother with under the hood there's a bunch of that in the uh, um there's a lot of that in video game design role-playing games, yes. which is cool. I mean, I love, I love, I love how those two things can go back and forth to each other. A lot. You see a lot of influences going back and forth a lot of times. Uh, I think that's also in the star Wars FFG game too, because those trees, they cost more experience points to get some of the, the deeper, um, deeper things. Yes. And it's also part of your standard development path for like games like civilization. Yep, exactly. I mean, all that stuff is, is very much in the same vein. I, it'd be cool to see that, see more of that. I like, I'd like to see more of that kind of thing in, um, in role-playing games for, for character development, especially for the people that want to play games that have that stuff in it. Cause I don't think that's well represented or as broadly represented as it could be. That's that, that is somewhat true. I, I think it's very true within the market dominating D and D space with, you know, there are some exceptions to say, oh, I don't want to do class and level, so you do something like Axe. I'm sure that there are other games that do it. You know, GURPS has always been, and Champions have always been, point by and buy what you can afford and that sort of stuff. And Yeah, but it sounds like you're talking you know, about more like talent tree type stuff. Uh, yes, that's right. So, yes. So, on the one hand, the, the issue with GURPS is the quantum of, of improvement is one point, And you can have things that are, you can either have lots of one point things or you could have a hundred point thing. Um, and, and so you have a lot of front loaded choices to make, mm-hmm. even if you're, as you're progressing, uh, there's a lot of that. The advantage of the class and level system is that you don't worry so much about analysis paralysis. Yeah. Uh, and then ideally each advance is roughly commensurate with the advances that you get for an equivalent level from a different class. And it also enforces niche protection in a way that, the point by systems don't always what I'm hoping to accomplish with project P as I call it um, is kind of splitting that difference where the number of choices that you have is, is large enough to differentiate between characters, but chunky enough that every much like every attribute score has uh, increase has meaning getting a feat has meaning. You Mm -hmm. want your class boots to have meaning, um, and, but you don't want it to be, okay, I've got a hundred more experience points. So now I need to add a hundred things to my character sheet. Yeah. You want, when I get that hundred experience points, am I going to save my hundred experience points or am I going to buy into one of these other 
uh, talent tree things that are sort of sitting here or am I going, yeah. Or am I going, yes. yeah. Am I going to sit down? Yeah. Am I going to get my, or am I going to broaden and here right. like the things that really make sense for me to broaden? That is correct. And, and then things like, you know, right now the proficiency system is pretty chunky and it automatically goes as you level. Well, what the, the talent tree system would be is like, okay, I'm going to buy animal handling mm-hmm. and your first purchase of animal handling gives you plus two. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be able to buy up to plus six, but you're not automatically going to get to plus six. Yeah. Simply by getting better, you have to choose to spend your things there. And, and so what you'll do is you'll have these spikes of, of, of things that allow you to be, oh, I'm a, a great fighter, but also I bought a low level of magic talent. Or, you know, I know everything about animals and nature, but also I've learned how to do kung fu fighting. Um, and or you could just sort of follow a traditional tree and you'll say, oh, look, I'm a druid or in Dragon Heresy, mm-hmm. a Trevenor, which means tree friend in, Iceland- Iceland- nice. in Icelandic. I like that a lot. I like I, I love um, that kind of uh, flavoring to to a game yeah. using especially that, that. I think that's a once again, Iceland and, and those countries are uh, sometimes underrepresented, which is why I like the Witcher so much because the, the Polish uh, background that goes along with it. You know, and one of the things that I didn't necessarily realize, but, you know, I've seen people cast a couple stones at, at D&D and murder hoboism and stuff like that. And there's, there's some truth to it, right? I mean, the thing is, the interesting thing that I found is that I've been reading more and more about Viking culture. Mm-hmm. These guys are D&D party. They I mean, are. Seriously. <laughs> That's how it works. Right? It's they- how it works. You got fame and fortune and reputation by getting in a long ship, going over the ocean, killing people and taking their stuff. But you had to do it honorably. You couldn't go steal their stuff. You had to set their longhouse on fire and kill them as they came out. That was fine. Mm-hmm. But sneaking in while they're asleep, taking their stuff, and then leaving, that was dishonorable, um, which is why thieves don't appear in the introductory set. Yeah, f- fortune and um, glory through battle, right? Right, that's right. You know, And, and your best... Your biggest goal, other than fame and fortune, was to die gloriously, mm-hmm. so that the Valkyries would notice you and and tap you on the shoulder as an Einar Yar to go to Valhalla. Um, and, and so the 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 murder hoboism and the 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 impetus for adventure <clears throat> um, fits really really well in this particular culture, um, which is is a great little mini excuse for kind of old school play. And I'm not trying to make an old school game per se but there's a certain charm to the basic we're going out for the sake of going out to 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 find bold adventure and then have the scalds sing about it i mean the Um, the the diy osr community like i I don't think there's anything wrong with playing with writing towards that i also don't really think oh man here you go hey down with dnd folks we're we're talking about wait other shows in the network right now. So like Hobbs and friends of the OSR, they talk about OSR stuff, misdirected Mark uh, podcast. We tend to talk a lot about indie games and design and whatnot, like the story game thing and the, the OSR do DIY thing. They're really just two sides of the same coin. In my opinion, um, the, the trad space, I, I trad, I'm using quotations here is, um, is also a, a, an interesting play experience because I think it's a really about that character customization when you're talking about the, the trad space for character development. That's why I, I like that space in, in, in some way, shape or form, as long as it's not too crazy. Like I can't get down with the GURPS things. It drives me nuts trying to build a character. Um, and I think that's fair. Uh, you know, GURPS is the, the knock on GURPS and the strength of GURPS is this was one of the same things. It's very front loaded. Yeah. 
Yes. It's front loaded in the game that in the way that D6 Star Wars or first or second level of any of the D&D editions is simply not. Uh-huh. Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game, the box set that, that I've got behind me here, uh, attempted to mitigate that to a degree by um, uh, they had arch- rigorous use of templates. Yeah, they had templates, archetypes, they had arch- um, templates, yeah. archetypes, whatever, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I was kind of hoping they were going to go further with it. Um, Sean Punch wrote a really great article called uh, Pointless Looting and Slaying, <laughs> which basically uh, took away all of the under-the-hood stuff and said... Here are some packages you can take. They're going to feel a lot like character classes or feats or modular modular packages that you hang on a character. Uh, and it reduced the number of choices that you had to make getting into the game. And I think that uh, I know why they did it why, the way they do it, but um, taking that step to really make it so that you could be up and running in an hour with a group of four to six characters would have been a worthy design goal. So... I, uh, I like that idea quite a bit, actually, that there is a better situation for, for starting up characters in, in, in games. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons why when I, uh, when you mentioned that, that no level, no class thing, I'm like, and, but yet like these sort of talent type trees, I'm like, that's really cool to me. Cause I like that, that concept. Like it's somewhere, like you said, in between, uh, having way too many options and having way too focused options. Right. Um, uh, we are we are we are running towards the end of our time. I know that the the Dragon Heresy Kickstarter is coming pretty soon. Um, when it'll probably be running when people start hearing this episode, I would imagine. Uh, what is in the Kickstarter? What can people get? What's uh what's what are the cool backer levels that you are offering? So, the the I'm a big fan of of pledge for what you're going to get and get what you pledge for. So mm-hmm. there's not a ton of craziness in the Kickstarter. Uh, Kickstarter either launches or has launched on April 2nd, uh, since I thought launching it on April 1st was a little on the nose. <laughs> um, but it'll launch on April 2nd. It'll run through the 28th. Um, and the backer levels are basically PDF, uh, physical plus PDF. So PDF is 20 bucks. Uh, physical plus PDF is 50 uh, Then there's a sponsor level. For a hundred, in case you just want to see this game out, and 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 you'll have you know prominent credit, but really that's basically saying I support the development of this game and want to see it flourish. Uh, and then there's the uh, uh, the Skjald Hearth level, which is for five hundred dollars, I will build you a custom Viking shield out of mostly authentic um, uh, wood hide glue, uh, goat hide edging, hand carved handle, uh, and a paint job on the front of the shield that represents uh, a variation on the logo of, of Dragon Heresy with these jewels and the triangles yeah. and, and stuff like that. That's pretty cool. uh, and if you support it that level, it's $500, uh, which gets you a shield that is, I think, better created than a lot of the $500 Viking shields on the market right now because most of those are plywood, hmm. um, and the ones that aren't are too small. Um, but uh, if you back at that level, you get the shield and you get the game for free, and I will get go to do a uh, when I say for free for five hundred dollars you've earned a full color print copy of that game and that's what I'll provide um, as opposed to the black and white interior that is the base level um, my goal uh, and it is not an unreachable goal is I would like to do an offset print run in full color mm. the game is laid out you've seen the PDF the game is already laid out in full color I have a lot of full color art from prior projects and art that no one has ever seen before that I pre, pre-invested in uh, for Dragon Heresy over the last two years as it's been written. I think, uh, I'll toot my own horn, I think it's a pretty book. I like the layout, um, and I want to see this. 
with the same kind of production values as a Simbaroom or uh, or an Axe, you know, Axe for black and white and mm -hmm. Simbaroom for color. Um, and in order to get there, um, we need I need to hit sixteen thousand um, dollars. If the average pledge is thirty five, which is half print and half PDF, mm -hmm. that's five hundred backers. That's not crazy talk. No, not at all. Um, and, and so I'm hoping that, that people, uh, who are interested in variant systems, who are interested in fifth edition, people who don't want to wait for Pathfinder second edition to come out, but want to play with some of the modifications, um, and people who love Viking culture and history, uh, will come by and, and, and pledge. But, uh, I will probably add a retailer level, um, mm -hmm. uh, so that people who run game stores, uh, can, can purchase a few, um, at a discount. Um, but that's it. Um, that's really, I, I want to keep it simple. Uh, I want to keep it straightforward. Uh, stretch goals are, are, are basically, there's a stretch goal, um, for, um, uh, there's a couple of stretch goals. One of them is for getting, uh, the offset print run. Uh, another that actually comes in early is I do have a bunch more races and classes that I've worked up. Uh -huh. Um, and I will add, a couple more classes. Uh, the classes are the biggest part of the book, and if I added it all, it'll all of a sudden be like 300 and some odd pages instead of more like 250. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you'll get all the races. You'll get tieflings. You'll get uh, whole elves. Uh, you'll get gnomes. Uh, you'll get a couple more classes. You'll get a bunch more clerical domains that explore the uh, the Norse mythology more. Um, and all of the backgrounds that I wrote, because I had written 20 or 30 of them, mm. uh, and there are really only a couple, because I wanted people to just sort of not have to go through all the choices and just be able to play. Um, that's a, that's like a 10, that happens at like $10,000. Um, that's the point where, and that's again, if I get $35 a pledge and the same number of people who pledged to Dragon, uh, sorry, Dungeon Grappling, my grappling-based Kickstarter, mm -hmm. that'll hit that. So. I learned in my last Kickstarter not to count my chickens before they hatch, but all of my stretch goals, except for the big one at 75,000, where I'm like, not only are you going to get this book, I'm going to immediately take that money and make the full 410,000 word, three volume, <laughs> three books at 200 to 300 pages a piece. Um, and just do that um, because I've got it written. It's partially edited. I have art. Uh, but as we talked about earlier, the art is the expensive thing. And to do it the way that I wanted to do it, I really feel like I need thirty to sixty thousand dollars more artwork. Yeah, that's that's art's expensive, man. I understand. It is. Well, um, thank you so much, Doug, for uh, for being on the show, for telling us about Dragon Heresy and talking about uh, rules drifting fifth edition and how you how you kind of did it. I uh, this is a very exciting project to me. I like this kind of uh, crunchiness because sometimes I I want a little bit more of that in my games. So, uh, thank you once again for being here. No, I appreciate it. Um, I'm glad to come on. And, you know, one of the nice things about the the intro set is because 5th edition is so modular, you could easily take some of the rules concepts and just slam them into your existing campaign. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, it wouldn't be too big of a stretch in some ways uh, to 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 pull Vigor and Moons and hit DC and, and threat DC and drop it in there. Uh, I mean... There'd be some weird things probably with magic, but maybe not, because really just hit points is just kind of attacking... I mean, the, any any damage that you would do is really just attacking. There's a bunch of rules in there I saw for how uh, how shields and armor mitigate uh, different kinds of damage. There's like a chart yes. for that. So yeah, there's a chart. We won't go into it because we're at the end of the show. The yes. one thing I will address on the magic thing is basically the shorthand is take whatever damage you were going to do from regular D and D, divide it by two, 
and that's how many wounds it does. Ah. And if you make your saving throw, you take it as vigor instead. Okay, there you go. All right, well, with that, uh, thank everyone out there for listening. I'm going to do a few Patreon shouts before we get out of here. Uh, Jared Rasher, Scott Robinson, Eileen Barnes, Michael Dinos, Jesse Edmond, Doc Palindrome, uh, Donnie Harville, Brian Kurtz, Andy Olson, Merrick Blackman, Rob Abrazado, GM Gerrymander, and Toby Sennett. Thank you so much for being patrons of Misdirected Mark Productions. And uh, speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. For $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you get pre-production show notes, and you get access to our Slack community, where there are uh, always fun conversations going on in the slack room for life <coughs> if you can't help us monetarily but you want to give us a boost you can do so with an apple podcast review they help us even if you're not listening to us via apple Podcasts. it's many other podcasters use apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank the shows which would make us much more visible um hey doug where can people find you on the internet if they want to get a hold of you uh, i can be found in a couple found in a couple places uh, the easiest is my website gamingballistic.com. Uh, i also have a gaming ballistic discord channel um, which you can find, and I'm on Facebook. And uh, actually, the easiest place to find me is uh, Gaming Ballistic or as Douglas Cole on Google+. Okay, thank you very much. Um, me, you can catch at Misdirected Mark. You can also go to the Down with DNDG Plus community, or you can just go to the website where you can catch um, all of the other great shows on Misdirected Mark Productions. Uh, so with that, um, Doug, I don't know if you've ever listened to the show before, but we do this thing where we say... Uh, what are we going to do now? And then Sean will say, we're going to go kill some monsters. So if you don't mind, uh, one, Down with d and is a misdirected mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Doug, what are we going to do now? We are going to go kill some monsters. You're down with d and Yeah, you know me. You're down with d and Yeah, you know me. You're down with d and Yeah, you know me. Who's down with d and You're down with d You're down with d Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.